Hello, hello, and welcome back to another week of Simply Wall Street's Market Insights. My name's Michael, and this week we'll be looking into commodities and fintech. Are they bargains or value traps? Those looking for potential bargains may have stumbled on some stocks in the fintech and commodity sectors. While some names seem quite enticing from traditional valuation metrics, there is more to it than simply finding stocks with low multiples. So this week, we want to do a quick review on both sectors, give you some tips to identify when a stock may be a bargain or a value trap, and an update on that elusive commodity super cycle analysts have been talking about for quite a while. But before we dive in, here's our quote of the week. The exchangeable value of all commodities rises as the difficulties of their production increases. Now, let's start with the fintech space. Fintech stocks. Bargains or value traps? In June, we published an overview of fintech stocks, which at the time was one of the most beaten up industries in the market. Since then, most of the industry is still struggling, with a few exceptions. Most of the fintech stocks that had breathtaking rallies in 2020 and 2021 are still 60 to 90% below their peak prices. And while many other technology stocks have recovered some ground in the last year, these smaller fintech stocks haven't. While this list includes very speculative stocks like Upstart and Affirm, it also includes two of the leaders in the group, and that's PayPal and Block, aka Square. So, are these stocks potential bargains, or are they value traps? To answer this, let's first look at why these stock prices collapse, and then have a look at why they haven't recovered. A look back to the past for fintech. In 2020 and 2021, fintech stocks were part of the rally in fast-growing tech stocks. In addition, there was some overlap, e.g. Coinbase and Robinhood, with the crypto bubble taking place at the same time. This was probably the reason that quite a few fintech stocks IPO'd at that time. This rally also occurred during the tail end of ZERP, which stands for Zero Interest Rate Policy, when all that mattered was growth. They could deliver that growth because they had plenty of freshly raised and cheap capital to spend, and consumers were spending, trading, and borrowing money online hand over fist. All of this made for a massive bubble that quickly deflated when interest rates rose and those valuations became unreasonable when growth proved unsustainable. So, what's the current situation for fintech stocks? When technology stocks collapsed last year, investors turned their attention from growth to profitability, and companies had to do the same. Hence, the sector-wide layoffs that we saw at the end of 2022. Since then, many of the non-finance tech growth companies have managed to improve their margins despite slower revenue growth. Most of the smaller fintech companies, and some larger ones, have struggled to do this though. They have either experienced a massive drop in revenue without a recovery, or they haven't managed to improve margins despite rising revenue. The chart in the article from Block's company report illustrates how little earnings have improved despite higher revenue. Typically, we like to see earnings growing faster than revenue as a company achieves scale. In Block's case, though, we see the opposite. The graphic below the chart in the article illustrates one of the reasons margins are under pressure. The graphic only includes companies in the payments ecosystem, leaving out lenders, investment platforms, and others. Clearly, the payments ecosystem from that graphic is very crowded, which keeps downward pressure on fees. This might not change until the industry consolidates a bit and there are fewer competitors. So what's the insight? Avoiding the fintech value traps. A value trap is a stock that looks cheap, but in time turns out to be expensive. This happens when prior earnings turn out to be unsustainable or when expectations for the future turn out to be too high. 
Upstart's price-to-sales ratio has fallen from 40 times sales in 2021 to only 4 times sales now. It may appear to be a bargain, but that depends on how things turn out in the future. In time, some of these beaten-down companies may turn out to be value traps, while others could turn out to be bargains. In general, some of the things you can consider to reduce the risk of owning a lemon include 1. Investigating earnings quality, which we covered in detail recently, particularly non-recurring revenue. 2. Make sure the company has a genuine competitive advantage, including unique and proprietary technology, network effects, partnerships, and or economies of scale. 3. Look at margins and unit economics to see if the company really can make a profit as it scales. And 4. Consider the competitive landscape and the size of the addressable market. Is this a race to the bottom or a winner-take-all situation? The last point is of particular importance to the fintech industry. Some companies are competing to become a critical cog in the financial system, as Visa and MasterCard have already become. If they achieve that, they'll have pricing power and margins will then improve. In that case, the current financials might not matter, but the question then is whether they have what it takes to get there. If you look at the company reports for Visa and PayPal, you'll see competing narratives with very different fair value estimates for these companies. These narratives include the types of catalysts that could determine just how sustainable their margins may be. So check them out on the company report if you're interested. Now let's dive into commodities. Huge divergence in commodities performances. Just over a year ago, we looked at the commodity market. And at that time, some analysts were calling for a new super cycle in commodities. So, what's happened since then? Well, it's been a bit of a mixed bag with most commodity indexes flat or down. The composition of these indexes varies widely and performance often depends on the weighting given to oil. Looking under the hood, we see massive divergence ranging from up 102% for the likes of orange juice to down 76% for the likes of lithium and everything in between. There's a table in the article outlining other performances of different commodities. Some of these large price movements have been the result of a normalization in prices. For example, natural gas and coal are down relative to the very high prices that resulted from the supply shock after Russia invaded Ukraine. And also, corn and wheat are down for the same reasons, and the fact that production increased due to shortages in 2022. Others are more idiosyncratic. For example, lithium is lower relative to the record prices set in 2022. Demand for EVs has also slowed, while production has increased. Also, agricultural products like orange juice and cocoa have been affected by weather systems in Florida and East Africa, which have resulted in very small harvests. Also, uranium is higher due to renewed interest in nuclear energy after the energy crisis in Europe. And lastly, iron ore has been affected by a slight recovery in demand from China, industrial action in Australia, and weather-related delays in Brazil. The overall commodity market has also been affected by the anticipation of a recession and persistently higher interest rates, which was partially offset by OPEC Plus's production cuts. So, what's happening with the commodity supercycle? When we exclude the unique events affecting certain commodities, the overall market is still subdued. But the market is still tight, as in supply and demand are closely matched, so that could change if demand increases. Supercycles, which are mostly relevant to oil, coal, iron ore and copper often occur when demand increases faster than supply can be increased. Increasing capacity for oil and metal producers takes years, so companies have to continually invest in multi-year projects for supply to keep up with demand. 
However, in the last few years, cash flows have often been spent on dividends and buybacks to keep investors in those stocks happy. So, if interest rates start falling and global growth normalizes, demand could begin to outstrip supply. But, as long as rates stay high and growth remains uncertain, the super cycle will probably remain on hold. Now let's talk about assessing commodity producers and their valuations. Commodity producing cyclical companies are very different from other businesses. Investing successfully in them is often paradoxical when compared to buying high quality compounders that you want to own over the long term. These cyclical businesses don't have recurring, predictable revenues and margins can fluctuate wildly. Revenues are inextricably linked to both the price and volume of the commodities they deal with. This means traditional valuation metrics like the P-E ratio can sometimes be very misleading for commodity producers. P-E ratios can often be at their lowest at the peak of a commodity cycle and at their highest during the bottom of a commodity cycle. When you are working out a reasonable price to pay for a commodity producing stock, you need to decide on the following. Firstly, the average selling price and volumes the company can achieve for its commodities over a reasonable holding period i.e. will the price and volume of a commodity revert to the mean which is higher or lower than today's prices, and two, a realistic PE multiple the market will pay when you exit the position. You'll want to monitor the outlook, i.e. where we are in the cycle for that commodity, and what that could mean for the price the market will pay for the business, a similar mean reversion approach to what you'd use with the underlying commodity. Often, the best time to invest in commodity stocks at least those with a healthy balance sheet, is when everyone else is running for the exits, which should help you find a solid company at a fair price just in time for the next cycle. So what's the insight? Think in cycles on cyclicals. A key point on investing in commodity and cyclical stocks raised by Gautam Bade in his fantastic book, The Joys of Compounding, is to focus on the capital cycle and price and mean reversion. Questions like these below can help you estimate where we are in the cycle. 1. Are these companies starved of capital or flush with cash? They're typically starved for capital at the bottom of the cycle and flush with cash at the top of the cycle when they're paying big dividends and doing buybacks. 2. Is the P-E ratio higher or lower than the historical average? If it's higher, it may indicate it's near the bottom of the cycle, and if it's lower, it may indicate we're near the top of the cycle. Confusing, we know. And thirdly, Where is the price of the commodity it produces relative to its average? If it's higher than average, we may be near the peak of the commodity cycle, and if lower than average, we may be near the bottom of the cycle. If it produces multiple different commodities, that's great, because it reduces its reliance on any one commodity cycle. If you haven't seen it already, Simply Wall Street now includes a note-taking feature. This is included just below the first section on the company report, but you can access it in your portfolio and watch list as well. You can make multiple notes for each stock and they're saved so whenever you need them, they're easily filed right beside that stock. You can use this notepad to jot down important points during earnings calls or when reading news releases. You can also make a list of questions for yourself while you scroll through the company report. We'll use BHP as an example. As we scroll through BHP's company report, we can take notes on how the market is valuing the business relative to its peers and industry which is checks 1.2 and 1.4, and how much revenue it generates from different commodities, which is check 3.1 in the past performance section. Now that we're here, we can see how the market is valuing the commodity producer and how much revenue it generates from different commodities. From there, we need to ask ourselves those questions we mentioned above, like, is this business starved of capital or flush with cash, 
We can find that in the financial health section. Secondly, is the PE ratio higher or lower than the historical average? We can find that in the valuation section. Thirdly, where is the price of the commodity it produces relative to its average? And lastly, what is the outlook of supply and demand for each commodity it produces? Once you have answers to all these questions, you can start developing a set of catalysts to make up your own investment narrative and work out the price you'd need to pay to still earn a return and give yourself a margin of safety just in case your estimates are slightly off. Now, let's talk about what else is happening in markets. First, a recap of the key data releases we mentioned last week. 1. In the US, minutes from the last Fed FOMC meeting revealed no real surprises. The minutes stated that the committee remains ready to raise rates further if needed. They also see policy remaining restrictive until they are convinced inflation will fall to the 2% target. 2. In Australia, the minutes from the recent central bank policy meeting also reflected a hawkish stance. The minutes noted that its forecast for inflation to decline to within its 2-3% target range by the end of 2025 were based on one or possibly two more interest rate increases. 3. In the UK, Jeremy Hunt announced a range of measures to stimulate the sluggish economy. These included tax cuts, raising the minimum wage, and investments in manufacturing and AI. Inflation in the UK is still 4.6%, so the Finance Ministry and Central Bank have a tough challenge ahead, reigniting growth while simultaneously taming inflation. 4. Canada's inflation rate fell to 3.1% in October from 3.8% in September. This was a bigger-than-expected drop, and economists now believe rate hikes may be over in that area. Additionally, here's a few other news items we thought were worth noting. 1. NVIDIA's quarterly results were quite something. I hope you're sitting down for this. Revenue of $18 billion was up 206% compared to the same quarter last year, and earnings per share was up 50% since the previous quarter and 1,200% year-on-year. Not too bad for a company that started out making tech for gamers 30 years ago. They have set a very high bar to beat going forward, but maybe they can. At this point, it seems that keeping up with demand will be their main challenge. 2. The saga at OpenAI has been covered all over the media, so we won't rehash it here. If you missed it, here's a good summary, and here's a hilarious video summary. You can find the links to both in the article. Just one observation on it. At the risk of sounding like Captain Hindsight, the structure of OpenAI was always going to be a problem. A non-profit that owns a for-profit with one very large investor and client, Microsoft, along with other investors and a board with competing agendas. Businesses usually work best when incentives are aligned between shareholders, the board, management and staff. This is something to consider with any investment and it seems it was potentially overlooked at OpenAI. Lastly, what are the key events during next week? The key economic data releases this week start on Wednesday with US GDP data. On Thursday, the US Core PCE Price Index and Personal Spending and Income data will be published. On Thursday, Eurozone Inflation and Employment data is due to be released. China's NBS Manufacturing PMI, the Purchasing Managers Index, is due on Thursday and the China's Caxon Manufacturing PMI is due on Friday. As we enter the tail end of earnings season, there are still a few prominent cloud software companies and retailers due to report, and they are Zscaler, CrowdStrike, Intuit, BHP Group, Snowflake, Dollar Tree, Okta, Salesforce, Dell, and Kroger. That's all for this week's Market Insights. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, invest well.
Simply Wall Street analyst Richard Bowman and Simply Wall Street have no position in any of the companies mentioned. This recording is general in nature. We provide analysis based on historical data and analyst forecasts only using an unbiased methodology and our articles are not intended to be financial advice. It does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any stock and does not take into account any of your objectives or your financial situation. We aim to bring you long-term focused analysis driven by fundamental data. Note that our analysis may not factor in the latest price-sensitive company announcements or qualitative material.